Well, it is a high privilege. We're the same way at our church family. Not often do we have someone, because God's blessed us like he's blessed your network with just so many gifted, spirit-filled people to preach and teach the word that is rare. So I understand. I consider it a real privilege to be with you in worship and to open God's word with you. Because today I want to dig into... I hope if you've been reading your Bible for years now, you have some chapters that you would say, oh, that's a big God chapter. I think there's chapters in the Bible that are there to just cause you to gasp again and realize in a fresh way, oh, I've made him too small. I'm living in a way that indicates he's smaller than he really is, but this is who God is. We're going to dig into what I think is one of the most glorious, big God chapters chapters in all the Bible. But before I read it, I want to give you some background. Often having some background can make what you hear and see even more impactful in your life. You see, to really appreciate Isaiah chapter 40, it might be a chapter you know just like Psalm 23 and some other top chapters, but maybe you don't know. Leading up to Isaiah chapter 40, you really need to read the first 39 chapters because those first 39 chapters are mostly filled with judgment and doom. Judgment and doom. Until suddenly in chapter 40, there's this incredible chapter of hope. You see, leading up to chapter 40 has been a string of horrible, horrible kings in Israel, ruling over Israel, until it all comes to a head with wicked King Ahaz. And so after decades of this kind of wickedness, you can imagine the people of God were crying out to God and praying for godly leadership, praying that God would give them a good king. And he gave them one in King Hezekiah, because 2 Kings 18.5 says, there was no one like him of all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. Finally, some godly leadership in the nation. But as you follow the story, you'll see that even the best of leaders are faced with some of the toughest problems. And that's important for us to keep in mind today. Yes, pray for godly leaders. But it's a huge mistake to ever think. We can be guilty of thinking, oh, if we could just get the right leaders in place. We don't have the right leaders in place. If we could just get the right leaders in place, everything about our future would be secure, and the conditions of our nation would prosper and improve. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You see, as soon as King Hezekiah was in office, he faced some horrible problems that are described in the chapters leading up to chapter 40. In fact, God sent the prophet Isaiah to tell King Hezekiah. He sent Isaiah to tell him, this nation of Babylon, that at that time was not a powerhouse, Assyria was the powerhouse, this nation of Babylon that you think is your friend is actually going to plunder you and carry everything you care about most away into exile, including some of your very own descendants. Imagine hearing this for the first time. We're always concerned about our future, right? We always hope it will be better than what's happening now. Imagine hearing this for the first time, that the future for the next 50 to 100 years for your grandchildren will not be one of freedom, 
but oppression. And imagine knowing that it's the word of the Lord bringing this bad news and not just some kind of human speculation. Because within three generations, it happened just as Isaiah prophesied. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon marched on Jerusalem, reduced the city to a heap of rubble, deported most of the able people off, leaving the rest to a scavenger life in a city with no walls. So this great chapter of the Bible that so many of us probably love and have known for so long is actually written to a group of people who have just received some of the most devastating news that your future is not going to be what you would hope for. Isn't that how it happens so often for us here in this life? Your future and my future can change dramatically with one piece of devastating news that you didn't see coming and you have no power to change. Maybe that's where you are today. Something has happened in your life that changes the future and you have no power to do anything about it. There, we live in a day that's so accustomed to something should fix this. There's a solution for this, but there's no fix. You can't change it. What do you do when something happens that changes the direction of your future for the next 10, 20, maybe even 30 years or a lifetime? That's what's going on when God spoke this great message of hope through Isaiah in chapter 40. And so I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the prophet Isaiah when God says to him, I want you to go and comfort these my people. Can you imagine such an assignment after 39 chapters of judgment and bad news and doom? I'm sure Isaiah was thinking, God, in light of all you've already had me prophesy and tell them, what could I possibly say that would bring any measure of comfort? Isaiah chapter 40 answers that question when it puts on display the sovereignty of God and reminds us that God sits enthroned over all the events of history, including those that are impacting your life right now. So that no matter what happens in our national life or in your personal life, a sovereign Loving, wise God controls it all for his glory and our good. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 40. And stand with me as I read this great chapter of hope. Isaiah chapter 40, standing together. Comfort, yes, comfort my people says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord 
shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands, say it, forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock. Like a shepherd, he will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Oh, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, calculated the dust of earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket. And are counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. And they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith overspreads it with gold. And the silversmith overspreads it with chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and all its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. To whom then? Will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He's talking about the stars. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? 
Have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Also, what does God say to people who've been shattered by national or personal circumstances? Oh, we could dig into this chapter for weeks, but I just want you to get two things this morning, two things I want to highlight that I think would be most important for you to get. Number one, you must know who your God is in the midst of shattering circumstances. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Knowing God is never, ever optional. But it's essential in times of crisis. Four times in this chapter, he calls us to behold something about God. You see it in verse 9, twice in verse 10. You see it in verse 15. And then in verse 26, he says, lift up your eyes on high and see who, not what, who has created this universe. Listen to me. Here's what happens to us as human beings. When the what of your circumstances begins to overwhelm the who of your God, you'll lose heart. You'll lose heart. And our flesh and our enemy Satan loves to try to shrink our world down to no bigger than your latest trial. And just shrink wrap it. You're seeing nothing but the trial, nothing but the details of the darkness. Oh, get this. If you want to persevere through difficult and shattering circumstances, you must always be seeing more than just your circumstances. And uh, television doesn't do that. CNN News doesn't do that. Fox News doesn't do that. The Discovery Channel doesn't do that. Binging on Netflix doesn't do that. I got one place I go that does that. God's Word. Repeatedly, God's Word frames everything up bigger, 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 bigger. Oh, Not just right here, right now, but right here, right now, in light of eternity, in light of more. you got to always be seeing more than your circumstances. You see, if who God is is not intersecting with where you are, you'll lose heart. We've got believers that just, they have facts about God, and it's off in a category, maybe cold storage. And it's not intersecting with where they are. That'll do you no good. Who God is has to intersect with where you are and what you're going through, or you will lose heart. So what is Isaiah doing here? He's showing you more of God because he figures you've already got enough awareness of your circumstances. He's showing you more of God, more of God, more of God. And when he uses this word no in verse 21 and 28, It's way more than cognitive knowledge, just factoids. There's some things I know about God. There's some boxes I'm checking. Oh, that word no that he uses in verse 21 and 28 is the same word for no that's used in Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. 
It's the Hebrew word for know that was experiential knowledge as you enter into an intimate relationship with someone so that you can trust them and rest in them. It's the same word that was used in Genesis for Adam knew Eve. This is not just, I'm aware there's a woman over there. This is more than, I'm aware that there's probably a God. It's like experiential, I am knowing him. I have a fresh awareness of him to the extent that it enables me to trust him and rest in him. And that word here is a Greek, is a Hebrew verb that that means to hear something in a way. They've got different words. It's not just, it's not, you know, think about how often you'll say, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you. That's a euphemism usually for shut up. I'm not interested in what you're saying. It's not having any impact on me. This is a word for hear that means to grasp it in a way that it changes what you think you can do next. Have you not known God intimately so that you can rest and trust? And have you not heard in a way that you grasp that changes what you think you can do next? So let's walk through some of the highlights. What is it that you need to know in a fresh way and grasp about God that would change what you think you can do next? Well, first, look. Look at how God's power, letter A. Look at how God's power and authority are never frustrated by the decisions of earthly rulers. Oh, my. In the last two years, has there not been an epidemic level of frustration, even among Christians, with civil, earthly rulers and decisions they're making? Don't hear me saying that I've not been unhappy to a degree. Do hear me saying we don't know what we should know about God if we're freaking out over it, as if these human beings are redirecting the course of history in a way that, oh my goodness, our God is not wringing his hands on his throne saying, how am I going to accomplish my purposes now? With this person in the White House, I can't do it. Oh, we should have got out the vote. We should have got out the vote. We should have got out the vote. No. God is absolute. There is no man or woman in any position of power that is not there by the sovereign decree of our almighty God. He's in control he, he doesn't shift to plan B or C and say, here's what I meant to do, but I can't do it now. No. No. Sovereign. Sovereign. Look, there's such a contrast in this chapter between the power of God and that of human beings. Look at verses 15 to 17 again. Nations are a drop in the bucket, counted as dust, less than nothing. Look at verses 22 to 24 again. He brings the princes to nothing scarcely are they, you could say, scarcely do they take office, scarcely do they begin to pass new legislation, scarcely do they, and our God can go, and blow them away. He's not rattled. He's not frustrated. He's not running scared. But secondly, letter B, look at how God's love for his people is never diminished, even in the worst of circumstances. We make a mistake by continually associating his love with comfortable, wonderful circumstances. That's how I know he loves me. If that is how you approach life, you will regularly doubt God's love. This passage reminds us, oh, that circumstances can be dark and God's love for you can still be rich and real in the midst of that darkness. 
Right here in the context of grim circumstances, I want you to see the tenderness of God. It all starts with that third behold in verse 10. Look at it again. Behold, his reward is with him. That's a reference to us. And his work is before him, us. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Despite the awesome power of a high and lifted up God, he's also personal and tender. Personal and tender. There is no other God like our God. When our, when our culture allows for a thought about God or, or religion, I chafe that they continually act like, choose your religion, whatever flavor, it's all the same. Christianity is in a category unto itself apart from every other religion because we have a God who is not just high and lifted up, but who took on flesh and stepped into our mess and became one of us and loves us and knows us and is personal with us. There's no other God like this God. And so this chapter shows you both the power and personal tenderness of a sovereign God. Theological terms would be this. You see the transcendence of God, high and lifted up, holy, other, almighty, and the eminence of God right here with us. And you don't want to let go of either end of this theological rope. When you hold on to the transcendence of God that he's high and lifted up, it only makes the eminence of God more precious, that this God would know me, call me by name, think on me, care about me? Yes. Yes. Look at verse 1 again, because I want you to notice two of the most encouraging pronouns in verse 1. In that one verse, my and your. He calls us my people. And he says he's your God. He's not just a God. He's your God. There's a relationship, and it's one that can never be severed despite shattering or dark circumstances. Oh, you've got to know God personally in a way that changes what you think you can do next. And you've got to remember and be hearing who he is in a way that you grasp. But secondly, number two, you'll need to depend on God's word. You'll need to depend on God's word and be living for more than just this present moment if you're going to keep from losing heart. Look at how God's word is set in contrast to the frailty of human beings. Verses 6 to 8. All flesh is grass. It's loveliness like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades. People are grass. Grasp. But the word of our God stands forever. The frailty of human beings, the power and endurance of God's word. But secondly, letter B, look at how God's word's already been fulfilled in the past in a way that is so encouraging for the present. Look at verses 3 to 4 again. Because verses 3 to 4 are promising and predicting the first arrival of the Messiah and are talking about John the Baptist preparing the way 700 years. This was written 700 years and proclaimed by Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was ever born. And now we live on the other side of the fulfillment of that prophecy. He came. 
He took on flesh. He burst into our world. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He fully kept God's law perfectly and then gave his life in substitution for us on the cross. And the physical suffering was not the worst part of it. The Romans had perfected crucifixion. They they had times where the streets were lined with crucifixions and they would crucify untold numbers of enemy soldiers after they conquered them. It was a horrific death, but the most stunning part of Christ's death is that the wrath of this high and lifted up holy God in that moment was poured out on his son who became sin for us. He drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that anyone who puts their trust in Christ as Savior and Lord can be forgiven, can be clean, can have a robe of righteousness, can be adopted into the family of God, sins removed, and the righteousness of Christ applied to your account as if it was yours. So that when God the Father looks at you, he sees his son. And so that your security and assurance is based not on anything you've done, but on Jesus who never changes. Oh, that has all taken place, and we live on the other side of that now, which gives us great hope. You think of how many prophecies have been fulfilled now leading up to the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus. And now we look towards what verse 5 is talking about, because verse 5 has to be talking about something different than his first arrival. Look at verse 5 again. This can't be talking about his first arrival. It's talking about something greater because it says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. In his first arrival, a handful of shepherds and a few wise men saw it. Oh, when Jesus returns this next time, the sky is going to split from the east to the west. The trumpet will sound and there will be no one who misses it. All flesh shall see it together. And he'll be coming back not as gentle, lowly Jesus in a manger, but King Jesus. King Jesus. If you've been longing for justice, you hear it all the time now. I get pushed back in the gym from people that know I'm a pastor that I'm trying to share the gospel. Hey, Pastor Brad, when is God going to do something about all this evil? When's he going to do something about all this evil? News alert. He has done something definitive in the death and resurrection of his son, and he will yet do something, but it's his mercy and loving kindness that delays. I looked at this one guy right in front of my treadmill, and I said, my friend, when he does something about this evil... Untold numbers of people will be judged and destroyed. We always think, you know, what's wrong with our world today? The best answer you could give is me. Me. When he does, we always think, when's he going to do something about this and it's going to involve all those wicked people out there somewhere? Woo! When he comes back, there will be justice. There will be justice. But right now, he delays so that more can come to faith in Christ. And Believers, people of God, we get to be his people for such a time as this. Don't wish we lived 50 years ago when we had farms and things were better and everybody. It's actually a better time to be a Christian. You realize that? Back in the 50s, beaver, cleaver, unbelievers were nice. 
Unbelievers told their kids not to cuss. Unbelievers told their kids not to steal. Unbelievers told their kids not to sleep around. Now, if you are a Christian, you are peculiar. It's a great time to be a Christian. There is clarity as to who knows God, loves God, and who does not. Stop wishing for a different time. And stop running scared like the rest of the world. He's sovereign. He's in control. And he's at work in our world. This could be the greatest time of harvest. Not, oh, wow, we want to have another president that aligns more with our biblical values. God knows what he's doing. My prayer every election is, God, give us the president that would lead to the most people coming to faith in Christ. Seems like he keeps answering my prayer and not a bunch of other people's. And it seems like he thinks presidents and leaders that aren't quite what we would wish would get it done better. Because guess what? There's a sifting in the church and we're finding out who loves Jesus and who was playing around. We get to be the people of God for such a time as this. But let her see. Look at how God's word points us to the future in the midst of shattering present circumstances in a way that builds your courage and faith. See, having confidence in what's coming next changes how you live now. Confidence in what's coming next, and I'm not talking about what's coming next politically. That's not the most important thing you need to know. Spiritually, what's coming next? I can have confidence in how I live now. As you watch the Apostle Paul write believers who were suffering, every, every book he writes, every letter he writes, he's writing to Christians that were suffering far more than we are today. And you never see him trying to convince them that this is your best life now. Never. He doesn't even pray that God would remove the suffering. Have you ever noticed that? He prays that they would be rooted and grounded in the love of Christ. He prays that they would persevere. He prays that they would know God more. He prays that they would remember eternity. The only way this could be your best life now is if you're going to hell. Tell Joel Osteen, this was not meant to be your best life now. You have eternal life now. But our best life is coming. It's coming. And it's coming sooner than you may realize. It's coming. It's coming. Persevere. So much of the intent of God's word is to empower us and enable us to persevere. To persevere. To persevere. So look at how knowing God and knowing where you're headed changes your ability to persevere. Look at verse 31. Probably one of the most famous verses in this chapter. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, run and not be weary, walk and not faint. Oh, it's no mistake. Notice this chapter that's one big God thing on top of another ends talking about us. Why the shift? I'll tell you why. God's word, the intent of God's word was never to just give you tons of information about God. It was designed to lead to transformation in us. And how we live in light of that. Oh, when you know who he is, really know and grasp it, and you know him, you've heard it and you know it experientially, it changes how you live and what you think you can do next. But before I unpack verse 31 a little more, I want you to notice, because whenever I see power of God, I find myself saying, how do I get some of that power? I feel weak. I feel overwhelmed. I feel inadequate regularly how do i have some of that power of god at work in my life look at verse 29 he's giving you the qualifications of who qualifies for the power of god you see it 
He gives, my new King James at least, he gives power to the weak. You feel weak? You're a candidate. You're a candidate, if you're a believer, for power, for his power. He gives power to the weak and those who have no might. He increases their strength. But I want you to notice something else about verse 31. Has it ever struck you as odd, the sequence of that verse, the order of that verse? Look at it again. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. Doesn't it seem like it should start with they'll walk? And if you get good at walking in the Christian life, woo, you might start to run. You get in an accountability group and you do some Bible studies with colored pencils and circle verbs, you start running. And oh my goodness, then if you read the right Christian books, 10 Secrets to the Christian Life, you start to soar. You get in the zone. I'm in the zone. It's, I'm in the zone books that sell. Even Christian publishers know that. It's 10 secrets, 10 keys. Everybody wants to soar. I don't want to be in the trenches duking it out. I'll tell you why I think it's in that word order. Because God knows something about the Christian life that we struggle to settle in with and accept. You ready? The bulk of your Christian life will be walking, taking the next step in faith to the glory of God. We all want to soar. And sometimes you just sit and say, until you show me a whole bunch, until you throw light on the next couple years of my life, I'm not moving. Well, then you'll never move. The bulk of our Christian life is baby steps, taking the next step, trusting him, knowing him, even in the dark. I don't see everything I want to see, but I'll go with you, God, because I know you. I know you. I know you. I know you. It was William Carey, the father of modern missions, that wrote, I can plod. That's my only genius. To this I owe everything. The greatest heroes of the faith are not always those who are soaring, but those who are simply taking the next step. I've had seasons of soaring. I hope there might be some ahead. But more and more I'm learning. What he wants to see in Brad Bigney is a willingness in the ordinary days to take the next step, to walk it out, to trust him, to just do the next thing. I invite you to bow your heads with me as we close. And I want to ask you today, what about you? What would that next step be for you? Well, maybe you've been attending Sailorville for a little while. You have heard about Jesus. You have heard the gospel explained. You, you've actually settled in and, and come to grips with the fact that you're a sinner. That next step for you might be today, my friend. Trust in Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Stop saying, I need to know more. I need to understand more. But what about, what about, what about? You may know enough. He has revealed his son to you and your sin to you. Trust Christ. But maybe as a believer, that next step for you would be trust God in that marriage. Give it some more time. Give it, wait on the Lord. See what God does. Maybe it's to forgive that other person in your past or your present. Stop waiting for a feeling. A feeling's not gonna come. God's word in the gospel tells you what you should do. Forgive. And maybe some of you, God's been tapping you to step out of your comfort zone and into a ministry that unsettles you. It doesn't match what you think you can do, but God loves to lead us outside of our comfort zone so that he can get the glory. 
Would you be willing to say today, God, I don't need to soar, but if you'll show me that next step, I'll take it. I know you. I've heard, I've heard of you in a way that I grasp. I want to follow you, even if it's in the dark. I want to follow you. Use me for your glory.